Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your hosts, Mayu and Austin. Mayu, I see that Christmas tree behind you. It's the holiday season. You're very festive. <laughs> yeah, that's all my wife, to be honest. Um, she, she really makes the entire place a lot more festive. I'm not the best for that. Not going to lie. <laughs> it's not I'm, worth your time, right? You no, no, no. I'm just, I'm like a, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say typical guy here, but if I was living alone, I'd probably just have a chair and a dining table and a bed. <laughs> like I'm one of those. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. So what have you been up to, man? It's the holiday season. I'm hoping things are more chill for you or is it not? Uh, it's interesting. Finally working from home. So I'm trying to, you know, ramp up um, deal hunting right now, but obviously the market everywhere is crazy. Um, so with that being said, Austin, like I know you guys have quite a bit going on the wholesaling side. So um, why don't you talk a little about those deals and what you guys are doing there? Yeah, so we have gotten a couple of leads that have finally panned out in the Sudbury market. So at the beginning, we're getting a lot of people who are just kind of inquiring, you know, when you get the letter, you're like, hey, how much money are you going to pay me for my house? But they just really want top dollar. There's no motivation behind it. But finally, some of these deals have panned out, um, namely two duplexes right now. And we are waiting to get the showings going on that. So it was a long battle. We'll see how it goes. Um, But one of the showings, one of the duplexes is causing us issues. The owner has scheduled a time for a walkthrough and they went MIA today, um, the day day before the walkthrough. So they're not responding to any of our phone calls. So right after us filming this, I got to give a call to everyone who scheduled the walkthrough and give them the heads up. Hey, you have the walkthrough tomorrow, but I just want to let you know by 9 a.m. tomorrow, if I don't hear from the owner, we're going to cancel everything. And it's, it's kind of shitty, dude. Um, they don't teach you this in wholesaling class. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately the seller, I don't know. Was he just kind of on the fence about wanting to sell it or, or what? <laughs> Yo, what his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, what do you call it? His, um, ringtone, not ringtone voicemail. Right. So you, you give a couple of rings and his voicemail is like, you know what to do. That's it. And I was like, wait, what? And that's your beep. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem like he uh he cares to talk on the phone too much yeah yeah um so you started off you sent the mailers like a couple of weeks ago right and then i guess um you're saying like it was slow to start off with so what happened there was were these just like cold leads that over time you guys were able to work it or or like what happened yeah yeah so one of the guys won a top dollar and then shortly after they call back they're like no we need to get rid of this house as soon as possible and <laughs> yeah we're able to negotiate after that yeah. Another one of the leads is, is that they wanted a high price, but we we're just unfamiliar with the neighborhood. So as soon as I heard the price, I was like, ah, in Sudbury, no way. And then I pulled the comps. Eventually I was like, all right, we'll just do the due diligence. And we're like, holy crap, this is significantly under market value for this particular area of Sudbury, right? So it's a learning lesson as well. Even though the price might not particularly make sense on first listen, you always got to look at the data, data over your emotions and, and what you think is right, right? Because data is what grounds all of the valuation. So it was a learning lesson. And we, we ended up locking that up because it was significantly below market value. Damn, looks like you guys are on uh, on course to your 1 million by the end of 2021, right? 
We'll see about that. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, um, this week we have Jacob Perez on our episode and Jacob is, um, an actual beast of a, of a mortgage broker, someone that myself and Austin have both used. Uh, he's got a very successful practice. Uh, is it a practice if it's a mortgage broker? I don't, I don't know what it's called. But he's a very successful mortgage broker, and he's got quite the portfolio of real estate investments as well. Um, just, you know, a very early start and uh, a lot of success in both avenues. So uh, he's definitely got a great story. Uh, check it out if you're interested in mortgages in general, financing, um, and just how to build your portfolio the right way. Hey, everyone. We are joined today with Jacob Perez. Jacob, how are you doing? Doing great. A little bit of an early morning for me here. It is my birthday weekend, but you know, we're going to get through it. We're going to have a good time on the show today. Oh, <laughs> shit. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Okay. So for those who don't know who you are, why don't you just give a brief background as to what you do, how many doors and units you're at and how you got started into real estate investing? Yeah, so you know, like like most people on the show, at some point, you know, I got started with real estate investing. For me, it was really um, when I was in high school, I heard the concept of a rental property. So I just heard the concept that you put a down payment on a property, you park somebody in their unit, and over time they'll pay off your mortgage for you. And when I heard that concept in high school, I was like, wow, that seems like the easiest thing in the world. Like, why isn't everybody doing it? You know, at that time, I didn't know about cash flow and you know appreciation of projects and things like that. I just thought it would be a really easy way to make money. So when I graduated university, the first thing I wanted to do was buy a rental property and I ended up buying my first place at uh, 23 years old. So you know I've, I've bounced around a lot of different careers, things like that. You know, I'm a, a business major. I worked in marketing, I worked in finance, I worked in project management. I had you know a good pension job with the uh, the government of Ontario. but eventually you know I found that all that stuff wasn't really fulfilling me. And eventually I wanted to work in real estate because I decided that, you know, whatever job I had, it had to have some alignment to real estate. It did make sense to be an expert in technology and live in downtown Toronto while trying to also be an expert in investing in real estate in Hamilton, Ontario, which is the, the market I was primarily focusing at the time. So I got my uh, mortgage agent license about three years ago. And since then, I've been kind of growing this mortgage business, which has turned out, you know, a lot, lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. I really thought it was going to be something I did, did that was chill while I invested in real estate. And through doing the mortgages, I've been really connected with all kinds of investors all over Ontario. And that's where I think most people know me from the financing side. I've been investing in real estate about seven years now. I have about 39 doors and we'll see how much longer I go with it. I think eventually I'm going to be moved to a, to a more private lending model in the near term. So Jacob, you said that, that was a lot there, but you said 39 doors, right? Mm-hmm. And so what is that like, what is that composed of? Like what was on a high level, you know, when did you acquire these assets and what was that journey like? Yeah. So I bought my first place when I was 23, you know, my goal was to buy a multi-unit. I was like, I want cash flow. So I started going to fourplexes, fiveplexes, uh, you know, in central Hamilton back in 2013. And I was terrified. I was like scared of all the tenants. I had never seen people who lived like this in my life. I didn't even know this existed. Right. I, yeah. I came from a suburb of Hamilton. So for me, I was like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, right? So eventually I ended up doing the complete opposite. I ended up buying a turnkey condo that was shiny and nice. You know, and the real estate agent told me you would rent for a certain amount per month. I was like, okay, this is safe. I'm good with this. Because those other properties were like, you know, terrifying to me at the time, right? right? And then, you know, the property, of course, didn't rent as high as the real estate agent said it would. And I was actually losing a bit of money on it every single month. 
And then, you know, six months later, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to buy another property. And that's when I bought, you know, my second property, 5% down again. And this time it was a house. It required a bit of renovation, but I got a really, really good deal on it. It was listed at 240 and kind of negotiated starting at 185. And I bought the house at 195,000. At the time, that was a really cheap deal in a good area. And that's when I took on my first reno project. So I bought two properties by 24 and then I wasn't really making much money off of them. I lost like 75 bucks a month on one. I cash out maybe a hundred dollars on the other. And I kind of was like, you know, real estate, I'm not sure how fruitful this is, but you know, I'm glad I got a couple of properties. And then that's when I pivoted back to my career. So I actually moved to Toronto. I did a master's full-time while working full-time. And I really was focusing on my career at that time. And then when I was in Toronto, I kept noticing that people kept asking me about the real estate. Like what you own a couple of properties, like, you know, you're 25, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, damn, man, mayor should really look more at real estate again. And then in 2016, that's when I started doing joint ventures. And I started buying again. So really, I would say I bought two properties, you know, 2013, 2014, I really wasn't invested in real estate. And then 2016 to now is when I've really grown my portfolio. So now it's at about 13 doors. And you know, a combination of things, you know, I've done a lot of the the duplex conversions in Hamilton. That's been kind of the most popular strategy I've used to uh, buy, renovate, refinance these duplex conversions. But, you know, I own a fourplex in Hamilton. I have a couple of fourplexes out in Niagara region, just bought like a eight townhome complex in Sarnia. So I'm kind of spreading my wings a little bit like with investing. But my kind of rule is that if I'm not going to invest in Hamilton, I'm going to go four doors or, or more any other market I look for if I'm going to have to commute or something like that to an investment. That's awesome. So you bought a couple of multifamilies. Were they tenanted or were they vacant? Because we know that sometimes when inherited tenants come with it, it could take some time to turn them over. Yeah. So, I mean, the first experience I had with a multi-unit was when I bought a fourplex in Hamilton and it was like an amazing property. It was listed incorrectly on the commercial MLS. So it actually wasn't on the residential MLS. And this is when like it, the market was crazy hot in Hamilton. And I remember like I walked through this place and every single unit was terrifying, like literally scary. Right. And so unit one was this guy, he'd been there 12 years. Unit two was he had been there six years, but he was unit one son. He moved out and moved into this unit. And then unit three was the other son and he moved out into this unit. And then there was just like, you know, I don't want to use the term to describe but some pretty sketchy people in the bottom, the other unit. Right. And, but the deal was so good. So I was like, Hey, what do I do? You know? So I remember I was like, how do you approach getting tenants out? And I called uh, somebody at the time, Adrian Pinozo. I'm not sure if you guys done your episode with him yet. Not yet. Um, we won't right? have him on okay, soon. Okay. So yeah. So back in like 2016, he gave me a good pep talk on uh, getting some tenants out and I, I bought a fourplex. So with that property, you know, I've been able, I was able to get three to four tenants out in the first month, right? Oh Sometimes it's as simple, it's as simple as honestly, just putting an eviction notice in a mailbox. Sometimes people just follow it. You'd be blown away. Like literally you give people 60 days, they just go, okay, see ya. Like that's what I did. I put eviction notices in two mailboxes and two people left and they're both like 12 year tenants, right? And then the third tenant that I got out of that property in the first month, you know, when I was going to check the boiler, her boyfriend was getting arrested at the house, like literally handcuffs, police cars, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just got a pep talk with her own life. I was like, you know, you got these two young kids, you have a boyfriend getting arrested at the house. Like what's going on here? Like, do you have family? Do you have anyone who can help you? Cause like, I was like, I'll let you out of the lease early, but like the kids are this, this and that. Right. And then she actually agreed to leave within a couple of weeks too. So Sometimes like just conversations with people house, but you know, some of the bigger projects, like the eight townhome complex we picked up, it is tenanted. So it's going to be more of a slow play. And I think like the sweet spot you want to be in is like, okay, this property 
cash flows as is so I can survive while I turn the tenants over, right? I think as long as, you know, the upside is there and there's a bit of safety built in, then, you know, it's worth it taking on those tenant issues. So that's usually where you're getting the better deals. Yeah, 100% agree. Because when you turn around one tenant in a multifamily, like these properties are valued by cap rates, the income approach, not really necessarily comparables, right? So you turn over one unit mm-hmm. and you could be adding $50,000, $60,000 to the value of a property. And you have a four, five, six, seven, eight unit property. Imagine turning over the entire building. You're adding a couple hundred grand to your net worth and you're only managing one property too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think at a five cap, it's basically like what? $1 is like $20 in your pocket, right? Like if you increase the rent by $1, you're basically increasing the value 20. That's basically it, right? I think. Yeah. It's it's a good strategy too, right? And I, I think look, when you break it down like that, Mighty, like you're saying, right? It's like now all of a sudden these like 40 units, 60 unit complexes, you know, they're not as scary anymore, right? Because you can clearly mathematically build out the value, right? Maybe it's just adding washer dryer to all the units because that in- increases the rent $125 a month. And now all of a sudden, you know, your property's worth a ton more, right? So multifamily is interesting. I think for me, it was like anything that was commercial financing was always scary. But then the minute I did it, I was like, man, why don't I do way more of these? Because I don't have to go through like the residential mortgage process, which has its own annoyances as well, kind of thing, right? But yeah, multifamily, it's good. You know, sometimes we we get so used to these bird projects that we want the instant gratification. We want the three month turnaround with our money back. So, you know, that's kind of like a blessing and a curse, I think. Yeah. So, okay. So you just went on something there, the commercial financing side. So because you're a mortgage broker, has that impacted your real estate investing? And like, on one side, does it take away from your real estate investing? Because you've got a pretty active business that's quite large. <laughs> so, you know, how does that impact the real estate side of things? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, being a mortgage agent, there I was when I was looking for like a secondary career, it was mortgage agent or real estate agent, right? And the reason I chose mortgage agent was because I knew less about it and I had more questions about it. I want to know what is going on behind the scenes. Like why, how do I get approved? Like what should exist out there? Like, I really wanted to know, right? Now, how does it affect me? Like, it's helped me a lot, I think, you know, because I've been exposed to so many different investors and seen so many different markets. Like, you know, I just got involved in a deal as the money partner. And the whole reason I got the deal is because the original money partner on the deal could not get a, could not qualify for it. And I was the mortgage agent. And I was like, okay, well, I'll fucking take this because this deal is incredible, right? I'll be the money partner, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I get exposed to a lot of things. I think being a real estate agent or being on the mortgage side, that really helps kind of thing. Now, does it take away from my investing because the business is very busy? I think like it does, but only if I chose to go full-time real estate investor. If I chose any other career path, like, you know, if I was still working for the government like I was before and things like that, yeah, I would have more time, but I wouldn't have as much knowledge of the industry. So I think, you know, overall it's been more, more good than bad, but yeah, like being, being a mortgage agent, it's been amazing. You know, my income has been able to like go up significantly. So even just from a qualifying perspective, like that helps a lot when you're in a position where you have the borrowing power and like your borrowing power is not really that sensitive, right? Like I can go buy, let's say, you know, a $700,000 fourplex and like, I'm not that sensitive to that liability in my application. I can still do what I want to do there's a lot of power with that in real estate investing as well that a lot of people don't think about. So, you know, getting your income up is a really valuable thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, 
Jacob, I do want to ask, we have a lot of listeners that are either aspiring investors or I guess newer investors with a couple of properties under their belt. I remember when I was starting investing, I thought I got top, tapped out at three mortgages because that's what RBC told me and I couldn't get any more. So I was like, what am I going to do now? I got to start raising capital. But however, when I started working with you, I realized that that was definitely not the truth because I got many more. So what are some common misconceptions that a lot of newer investors have on the mortgage side of things? Can we just quickly address them? Yeah, a lot of a lot of different misconceptions out there for sure. I think the first thing is, you know, people are always so curious and so concerned about what their property limit is, right? And it's like, well, get your first property first. Like, don't worry about your your fifth, sixth property limit right away. But I think the the main thing is that, you know, usually this is the big thing is people don't stop getting mortgages because they hit a property limit. Like that's almost never the case. I would say like 99% of the time, the reason people don't get a fifth, sixth, seventh mortgage isn't because the bank won't do that many mortgages. The reason being is that they no longer qualify, right? So the question really be has to be is, what do I have to do to actually qualify for all these mortgages so I can get them? So if you buy like, you know, a million dollar house in Toronto, well, maybe you can't get two, three mortgages because you don't qualify for two, three mortgages while carrying that million dollar house in Toronto. Right. So I think it's really just knowing the metrics in place that help you to be able to continue to buy one really uh, simple, easy metric. I like to float out to a lot of my clients is like I, I created this term it's called zero impact properties. So if you buy a property and that property does not impact your buying power, it's considered a zero impact property. So the way you, you get to zero impact with the property is if your rent is double your mortgage payment per month. So let's say you have a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage with a nine hundred dollar per month mortgage payment and you get $1,800 per month in rent on that property, that property effectively will not impact your borrowing power. So then you can buy two, three, four, five, six, seven, all at that maximum purchase price. So I think the big thing is a lot of people think that there's property limits. Another thing too is a lot of people think everything's the same. So if their bank tells them they're approved for one number, they're gonna be approved for that number everywhere else. Whereas, you know, I had a client the other day where they qualified up to 450,000 at TD Bank and up to 700,000 at Scotiabank. Well, that's a pretty huge discrepancy, right? So if they could have walked into TD and thought, okay, there's no way I can buy you know, my dream home at my ideal price point. And then they talk to somebody else. It's also a major five bank and they're approved, you know, $250,000 higher, right? So, you know, depending on your income type, whether you're self-employed, depending on the kind of uh, liabilities you carry, whether it's properties, whether it's lines of credit, things like that, all the banks underwrite them a little bit differently. So I think the main thing is you just want to have a conversation with someone who's actually done this before, and then that should hopefully steer you in the right direction. Awesome. Me and Austin both use that two to one ratio a lot. And we tell a lot of people, so this is our original source, everyone. They all came <laughs> yeah. from Jacob. So, yeah, so if, yeah. this, if it doesn't hold true, blame Jacob, not us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So I like, I'm curious because we obviously, me and Austin, we work like mortgage agents. Like what is the process on your side? Because on one end you have your client, which is, I guess, like the, the borrower, and then you have the lender, like, what does a, a normal transaction look like for a mortgage broker? How long does that take on your end? And like, like, really, what are like the challenges that you see? Yeah, so, you know, the mortgage agent world, it's really interesting. You know, I used to always think that, you know, it was about getting clients. And then I started to realize, okay, well, it's about also like servicing your business partners, right? Because maybe a real estate agent refers you a client. So not only do you have to do a great job for that client, but you also have to keep the real estate agent involved and understanding what's happening so they can proceed with showings and things like that, right? But then as I got into it, I learned there's this third party that's actually the most important in the transaction. And it's your relationship with the lender. 
right? So if you're sending garbage files to banks and you're getting declines, well, then what that means is all your future clients are susceptible because you have a reputation of sending in garbage files, right? So you really have to make sure that like you're keeping everybody happy. You're keeping your clients happy. You're keeping the banks happy. You're also keeping all the referral partners happy as well. Now, how what it looks like for a mortgage agent is typically, you know, I'll usually do a discovery call with every client, you know, so any client who gets referred to me, I'll usually get on a phone call with them. And on that discovery call, it's, you know, what are your goals? What's your current income situation? What properties do you own right now? And then after that kind of discovery call, it then turns into the boring homework that everybody hates. And that's like the document collection. Hey, I need a letter from your work. Hey, I need the lease for this rental property. I need so-and-so. Then from there, we'll book a follow-up call. And that's when all the fun stuff occurs, right? The spreadsheets, the numbers, here's what you're approved for right? And what we do for a lot of our clients are portfolio analysis, right? So you might walk into a bank or talk to a mortgage broker and they say, okay, well, your maximum purchase price is 500,000. But for us, it might be like, yeah, your maximum purchase price is 500,000. That's the as is analysis. But then there's also a if you extend the amortization on this mortgage, or if you take this home equity line and you actually roll in your unsecured line into it, your qualification jumps up to, you know, 585. Right. So we usually do a lot of like what if analysis right now when it comes to actually like an offer going in for a property or something like that. You know, a lot of people think that mortgage brokers are like on the phone negotiating with the banks, like negotiating the rate down or things like that. Like it's nothing like that. Really, there's, you know, 40, 50 plus lenders, but I'm not sending someone's file to seven or eight different banks. I know which bank is the best option for them where they will qualify. So really, I'm usually just submitting the deal to one specific lender and then getting a qual- an approval and then bringing it back to the client and kind of ironing it out to the finish line. A lot of the hard work is done like in advance. Like if you've ever worked with like our team, you'll see like if we ask somebody for something as simple as like a letter of employment, it won't say, hey, can you send me a letter of employment? It will say dated within the last 30 days, must show this, must show this, must show this. So every single thing we do is to eliminate back and forth because I hate when I send something in and it's not correct. And I hate receiving something and having to ask a question back, right? So with us, it might seem like a little bit smoother because we already know what to ask for in advance kind of thing. And also it's like, again, like if you're sending a mortgage to five different banks every time, that means at least four are not funding the deal. And then that basically means that that bank's not going to do that client a, a favor in the future because that client wasted their time and is walking away from the deal kind of thing, right? So we have to protect the lender's time. We have to protect the client's time by making sure we get everything correctly up front. But really it's just, you know, assessment up front. Then when there's an offer, we package their offer with their paperwork and get an approval from a bank. Now, you know, sometimes there's conditions. A lot of times there's conditions that come up that we're negotiating or we're satisfying conditions without the client knowing. Maybe, for example, they say, oh, well, we can't accept, uh, you know, this person's income at their job because there's this variable aspect. And then we're fighting behind the scenes and saying, well, look at, you know, this historical situation and blah, blah, and COVID and what have you. You know, so we try to avoid even involving the client in a lot of the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. But really the goal is like, let's get everyone as prepared as they can up front. And then usually everything should be pretty seamless after that. It's awesome. So like how, how important is like, what role does a brokerage play in the entire transaction? Like, would it make a difference if, I don't know, you were at brokerage A versus B and like, scale matter and you know all those yep yeah so it definitely does matter so you know in terms of like there's one thing right so there's experience of the agent that you're working with knowing how to do things correctly that's a big thing because i've had so many clients where they were declined at scotiabank and i got them approved at scotiabank right after the decline right so sometimes it really depends on patching the deal but the brokerage itself does make a difference because depending on the volume you do 
you get a certain commitment of turnaround times from lenders. And then you also just get like a general respect from lenders. Okay. So this is my brokerage's first year as a brokerage. So we just hit a hundred million dollars in mortgages to Scotia in eight months or nine months. And now we're in like the top tier status you can possibly be. So now that we're a hundred million dollar producing brokerage, it's kind of like, okay, we need a little exception. Okay. There's a little bit of a gray area. Okay. We need the turnaround time. It's, we are getting that kind of turnaround time because of our volume kind of thing. So really like the volume you do matters a lot, but also like the quality as well. Right. Because if you're one of these brokerages where you have 100 agents, so your brokerage does a lot of volume with like a particular lender. The problem is with hundred agents, your service levels may be bad. So you may only fund you know, 33% of your deals that you send in or 50% of your deals that you send in. So that's why I think with our brokerage, it's a very lean approach. Like we realized very early on, we could have 30 agents sign up to the brokerage right away. Uh, it's not hard. There's always new agents coming into the market and looking for brokerages to join. But then it's like, okay, we actually have to grow it in a very lean way so that our reputation is not being impacted. And we still get those extra service levels that make us valuable to our clients kind of thing. Two questions there totally unrelated. First thing, fixed or variable. Okay. That's the unrelated one. Second thing yeah. you mentioned about growing your business to a hundred million in what do you call it? Bookings with Scotia in what? Nine months. And we mm -hmm. talked offline a little last week and you were saying that you want to grow your business into a pretty much generating you millions in revenue eventually at a certain point. Right. And I, I want to know what you're going to do and what steps you took to build such a successful brokerage and how are you going to continue forward growing it? So let's start with yeah. the fixed and variable first one. <laughs> yeah. So fixed, fixed and variable. I think like, you know, everyone who's kind of known me, Austin, everyone, you know, I've, I've learned this from other people too, is like, you know, I'm a big, big fan of the variable rate because I'm a big, big fan of flexibility. I think that's why like, I like rental properties so much too. You know, I've never even bought a primary residence for myself before because it's too much commitment for me. Right. But like a rental property is great, you know, because I can rent it out. I can sell it in the future, what have you. So variable rates, they're really, really effective because the penalties to break them are very cheap. So anytime you're in a variable rate mortgage, whether you're with a major bank, an alternative lender, what have you, it's always three months interest to break that mortgage. So people are like, well, why would I break my mortgage? Well, six out of 10 Canadians break their five-year fix. And you might do this for a million reasons. You know, you might have upward mobility in your income. So you want to move into a bigger property. You might accumulate some debt. So you want to access some of that equity to pay the debt off. Maybe you're in a situation where, you know, God forbid you're breaking up, you're having a divorce, something like that. There's a million reasons you might want to actually break one of these mortgages. So the variable rates are really favorable from a financial perspective if you ever want to exit your mortgage agreement. Whereas if in your five-year fixed mortgage, well, then you're pretty stuck. You know, the penalties we've been seeing on a, on a lot of mortgages lately, it's $10,000, it's $15,000 just to break your mortgage, right? So the major banks, they're going to push five-year fixed all the time because they get to keep the client for five years or even better, the client leaves and they get that big penalty, right? So it's a win-win for the major banks. And you'll even see on the mortgage side, we might have a slightly tiny bit higher commission percentage on a five-year fix than we will have on other products. And there's a reason they're incentivizing that product, right? It's, it's better for the lender, right? But statistically in Canada, it's not actually been better for the client. If you actually look at like a historical average the last 50 years or so. And five and years then, is definitely uh, a long time, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Right. Like so much changes in your life. And then awesome. What was the other question you're asking about the brokerage? Yeah. Yeah. So you had big goals for it. You already scaled up quite successfully. How did you get to that point? Any recommend, like any advice to aspiring people who are looking to start their own brokerage and what are your plans to continue to grow that scale that up and then create that as a, I guess, a huge stream of income for you in the long term? Yeah, I think, you know, with whether it's mortgage business or it's really any business, I think the number one thing is like you have to be consuming a lot of personal development. I think like if you're not reading a ton of personal development, you're going to have trouble getting over all the little obstacles that exist in business because like they're literally endless, right? So I think that's like the big first step for anybody who's looking to get any fields of business. Make sure you're consuming success literature, business books, you know, books for your mind, things like that. How I actually got started in mortgages, you know, I was really just kind of like everyone else. I was trying to will it, right? I was writing blogs. I was getting on podcasts. I was networking, going for coffees with a million people. And, you know, for my first six months, I was like, where are the deals? <laughs> like, what's going on? I feel like I'm doing so much activity and absolutely nothing is coming through, you know, a few mortgages here and there, but like, it felt like really slow. Right. And then in my second six months of my first year, I had like a crazy surge of files and I never thought I would do as many files as I did in my first year, but it was all in the second half. Right. So all that work I was doing in the first six months, it felt like nothing was happening. And then it was like a switch hit off. And then, you know, the mortgages started flying in the, the next six months. So from there, you know, the business has grown and there's been new challenges, right? Because as you do a lot of volume, the challenge becomes how can you run an efficient operation, right? So everything we do internally in, a, in our business is like templated, noted, there's CRMs, every single thing is tracked so that anybody else can pick up your file and kind of run with it, right? So I think the main thing is like, you have to work really hard to build your business. And when it comes to lead generation, everything works. So networking works, you know, doing Google ads works, you know, writing content works, everything works. It's just what works the best for you. And what do you kind of enjoy doing the most? And then from there, it's who can build the most efficient process. Because when you're dealing with, you know, 600 leads a year or something like that, well, then how do you keep everybody happy? One person can't do that, right? So right now with us, it's really who could have the best team. And, you know, with me, with my visions of where the broker is going to be in a few years right now, we're, we're mapping out all that currently. And, you know, in, in five years time, like I will not be talking to clients anymore. Maybe the few clients who I'm really good friends with, you know, family, whatever, yep, you yep, know, right here. Talking to yourself, <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, five years from now, you know, if, if things go the way they should go kind of thing, you know, I probably will be focus more on growing different streams of the business, right? Maybe like a private lending hub, maybe a few different things and, and coaching our staff, right? So we have to build a system where there's enough leads where there's career growth within the organization, right? And then, you know, the biggest thing this year has been shifting from a producer to a leader, right? And that's taken a lot of learning and, you know, learning about our different staff and all their different strengths, right? Because we might have three people in the same role, but they might have three different strengths. And instead of trying to make them all the same person, now what we're trying to do is we're trying to focus on taking, you know, the one staff who has like the incredible ability to, you know, handle a huge capacity of files. Okay, well, let's just take some things off his plate and really work on his capacity because that's his strength, right? Whereas we might have another staff who really understands investment properties. So let's just grow their understanding of real estate investing so they could be the best at what they do kind of thing, right? You know, one of my staff just got into their first investment property. So that was like really exciting. So we're trying to push all of them to own investment property. I think that's going to help a lot because our client mix is probably like 
60 to 80% investors right now, right? So I think it's really growing the team in order to do that. I think the leads and things like that, you know, those just come naturally over time when you've done a good job for people. So eventually, you know, our database will be big enough that all we have to do is just market to our existing database, as opposed to always trying to seek out, you know, referral sources and external leads really it's just all the past client referrals are, are going to be enough to carry the business kind of thing. I mean, one important thing you definitely said that a lot of people don't get over is that the first six months was a grind and you were like, what the hell is going on? You probably thought it'd be much easier. You were networking, jumping on podcasts and all of that. It A, a lot of people don't go through that six months, right? They, they do two, three months of that and then they just give up. So kudos to you for putting in that hard work at the beginning. That was my, uh, that was my, I should have been a real estate agent phase. <laughs> That's what I was thinking the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I first met Jacob, I think in person was at some mastermind. Do you remember sponsoring the Burr mastermind? I, yeah, the oh, one in oh. Toronto, I think. Yes. Yes. A while, a long time ago. And I saw you talking about the zero impact mortgages and then yeah. I didn't work with them for the first two months because I didn't buy anything. But then the third month I bought something. So I could definitely see how these networking events led to business, but just not immediate business right away. Yeah. And sometimes too, is like, you don't know how things are going to work. So for example, when I started writing blogs and doing stuff like that, I thought I was going to get clients from it. But then what I learned was like, oh, actually, this is actually contributing to my branding and I'm getting better business partnerships out of it. So more real estate agents wanted to work with me. Whereas like all these activities I thought I was doing was going to generate like end clients. So a lot of times like these activities you're doing you don't even understand the way they have the ripple effects kind of thing. Right. And, you know, I did, for example, I did like one time I did this coaching program. It was like 10 grand. I paid 10 grand for coaching and I thought the coaching program sucked. I was like, man, I could have done a much better job. I could have wrote a better coaching program than this. Right. And just one little activity from that program got me a speaking thing at a seminar, which then got me on Matt McKeever's channel which then produces me like two or three mortgages every single month just from the recurring views, right? So it's like these little things that we do, we have no idea how they're going to benefit us. But as long as you're taking all the action, trying, 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 you'll see like you will win. It's pretty much impossible not to in these industries. Awesome. So Jacob, you went, you went straight into being a broker. Is that right? Or, or were you in Yeah. Okay. So what, what are your thoughts on like, but like, is it better to start off as a brokerage? And then also related to that, you know, what are your thoughts on like being a part-time mortgage broker? Because there's a lot yeah. of people part-time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll speak to both of those. So this is a really interesting question, right? So most people who go into mortgages, they either were a financial advisor or a mortgage spe- specialist at a bank already, right? So they were doing credit, they were doing mortgages already. Or on the flip side, a lot of times they worked as an underwriter for a mortgage agent like myself. So they were already doing all the mortgages in advance. They knew everything about mortgages and they just had to work on the lead generation stuff, right? So for me, it was kind of like I came from none of those fields, right? I knew nothing about credit. I'd never seen a credit report in my life till I was in mortgages. Like I didn't understand anything, right? But I was extremely confident because like my brother's a mortgage agent and he was like, he came from the bank's. And I was like, okay, I know he's having a lot of success. So if he can do it, I can hundred percent do it. <laughs> so that was like kind of my, my view on it. So I jumped in, but what I did that was different than I think a lot of these other mortgage agents who joined was, you know, I set up system up where I was paying like more than half of what I was making on every transaction in order to utilize their underwriting hub. So, you know, my brother at the time, they had an underwriter who worked for them. And I was like, Hey, let me just sit down with him a few hours per week and learn some basic things. And that was how I learned how to underwrite, right? Now, so for some people, it takes them longer. The real thing is this, 
the average mortgage agent in Canada does 24 transactions per year. Okay. So if you do a hundred transactions in a year, you basically just got five years experience. So your experience is a hundred percent tied to the amount of business you do. So for some people, it might take them three, four years to learn underwriting if they're coming in as a mortgage agent with no background, right? Whereas it may take somebody else six months because they're bringing in way more leads and they're seeing way more situations and they're able to actually learn it quicker, right? Because there isn't good resources to learn underwriting. They don't really exist out there. So I would say like the main thing is like, you know, if you are going to jump on as a mortgage agent and not take those first steps to actually know what you're doing credit wise before, it will be harder. Like it will be harder. There's no doubt about it, but you can have success with it. I don't necessarily recommend it that, but you know, I did it. So I, it's kind of hypocritical for me if I don't say like, yeah, go for it kind of thing. But I think had I worked in an underwriting role before, I would have, I would have started way faster. I feel like I would have started way faster because it took me a long time to learn. And then switching to your second question about, you know, being a part-time mortgage agent, I don't think it's a role you can do part-time. I really don't because there's so much urgency involved in it that, you know, it's the end client who's losing. So you might be in a situation where, you know, you could maybe process a mortgage to here and there and make a bit of extra money. But, you know, if you put like one person in a negative situation because you were busy at work, and you weren't there for them when they needed it. Like, what does that do to your brand? What does that do to your relationships? What does that do to all that kind of stuff? So I think uh, being a mortgage agent, it's a super rewarding career. I don't think it's like a part-time thing just because of the urgency. And also one thing too, is that banks are only open between nine and five. So you can't yeah. speak to those underwriters outside of nine and five, right? So that's just another thing to consider. But you know, like if, if you are starting anything self-employed, you know, going to have to have a budget you're going to have to have a strategy right so you know maybe you just have a part-time job that's outside of the nine to five hours and that's how you kind of start it kind of thing some great advice what what is the underwriting hub that you talked about because you just said there that you gave 50 percent of like whatever you made or something yeah underwriting well like just some some brokerages they'll have hubs right where for example like for us you know if we have a, a newer agent and they don't really know how to underwrite and they don't really know how to submit deals well we probably don't want them submitting deals because it might come across bad they might waste someone's time what have you right so you might tell them just collect all the appropriate paperwork and bring us an accepted offer with the paperwork and our our team will submit the deal for you through our underwriting hub Okay. And what I did, but with me, instead of that, it was more so, can I just sit down with the underwriters? I just want to sit down with them and just ask a few questions like, Hey, I typed in this thing. I'm thinking of this way, this way. Did I pre-approve them correctly? Right. Are you getting the same numbers I'm getting? Right. Just to make sure. So that was kind of it for me, you know, like it, it sucked when you're barely doing any business and you're giving away the highest split of your commission as well at the same time. But it's just kind of like part of growing into it. And if you're doing the right activities, like, you know, that will be behind you pretty quickly. Cool. From a client perspective, what would you say is the most common financing mistakes that you see that a lot of people come up to you with? So number one mistake financing wise that people make has got to be, and, I, I, and it's not even like mortgage related, just life related, right? And it's just, you know, getting the brand new car when you're like 20 years old or 21 years old, like so many people are doing this. I, I never did that when I was young. That never crossed my mind. Like I had a, you know, got a car for seven grand and I rode it till there was nothing left on it. That doesn't thing. seem very Jacob like. You're <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Don't you have a no, beautiful well, range right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but here, okay, so I'll tell you this, right? So I had, I literally had a Mazda 3 
and I had seven houses and I had a Mazda three and I could not even sell it for 1500 bucks when I was getting rid of it. Okay. <laughs> and then my range again, which is not even like, it's not even that nice, but I got it on lease busters website. Uh, so I got it off a guy who's an employee of Range Rover. So I literally pay $545 a month for it. And yeah, at the time yeah. I was looking at a Honda Accord, it was more expensive. So like, I'm still, you know, I still find ways to like do it appropriately. Right. But you know, it's just tough when all these young kids, like they start out with a brand new car and their payments, you know, 600 bucks a month, $700 a month. Well, it's just psychologically getting rid of that in the future. It's like almost a hit to their pride or something like that. Right. It's hard to go backwards. So I think the number one mistake definitely is getting a big liability while you're young kind of thing that doesn't produce income. That, that's the big thing. And then second, secondly, after that, I would say is, you know, buy, that's usually what they buy first is usually a big mistake too, right? So a lot of people, they want to do real estate investing, but they want to buy their primary residence first, right? So they buy, you know, townhouse in Mississauga, and then all of a sudden they go, okay, now I want to do real estate investing, but then they no longer qualify to buy a rental, right? Whereas if they bought three, four rentals in Windsor first, and, you know, stay at their parents' house, they would still qualify to go buy the primary residence in Mississauga, right? So I think like the order in which you buy property makes a big difference. You know, buying rentals first, as opposed to your primary residence first, will take you a lot further just by the way the underwriting ratios work. But I would say those are the two biggest things. And then finally, after that, I would probably say, you know, some people, it's just they're focused on putting way too much down payment and, and putting and paying off these mortgages as fast as possible. Like there's nothing wrong with paying off your mortgage. Like that's an incredible like feat to do. But at the same time too, it's like when you're limiting yourself from a budgetary perspective to make sure you're putting an extra $800 per month on that mortgage that really is only like 2% interest. That's when I think it's like, it's actually not financially smart. You're actually taking away money from your future by not reallocating those funds in, in a better area. So I'd say, you know, like the car payment for sure, the order in which people buy houses and the psychological pride associated with paying off a house. I think those three things are probably the three biggest mistakes. So question on that, you said that the order matters a lot. What happens if I buy a primary residence first and I buy another property, but it meets that double the income to debt rule, right? It's already tenanted Mm -hmm. and am I able to qualify for it or is the bank still going to look at it differently? Well, the thing is really just, your primary residence can never meet that rule, right? Because if you have a primary residence, well, you don't have tenants in it, right? Or you don't have renters. Maybe if you're house hacking, you know, it, it can get somewhere in that range. But again, they don't underwrite an owner-occupied plus rental. So a house hacking situation, the same way they underwrite a straight rental as a non-subject in your application, okay? So basically, if you buy a primary residence and you do still qualify to buy up to, let's say, 400K in Windsor, and you do reach that zero impact property threshold, then of course you can continue to buy kind of thing. But a lot of people, they just don't necessarily qualify to buy anything else once they got their first property, especially too, like some people's primary residence is co-signed. So they didn't even qualify for it in the first place. Right. So there's a lot of different factors. I I think what Austin's saying is like, okay, you buy a $700,000 mortgage uh, condo or whatever downtown. And like, that's all you can afford. Right. So now you're at the Mm -hmm. top of your borrowing capacity Banks basically say, okay, you're not going to be able to borrow anything else, right? But now you find a property that is the zero impact property, Uh, right? So can you then keep borrowing because these are in theory, zero impact property? Yeah, like the financial situation is the exact same if you buy a rental property first, then a primary, right? The financial picture is the same because it it meets the zero impact rule and you have the primary either way. Yeah, so the the confusing part about that, right, is that it doesn't work that way, okay? Because... because (laughs) 
because the the way they underwrite properties is there's different versions. Okay, so there's subject and non-subject. So subject is the thing you're buying. So the subject property is not underwritten the same way as a non-subject, something you already own. Okay. So whereas if you buy, if you own something that the mortgage is a thousand bucks and it rents for two, that doesn't impact your application. Right. But if you're buying something where it has the exact same metrics, it, it, it it's completely different the way they underwrite it. Cause it's the subject property. They add stress tests. They do all these different things to the subject property that they don't do to non-subject. Okay. They attribute the rental income differently. There's a million different things. So unfortunately, yeah, it's not that straightforward, but yeah, so it doesn't work that way. Like if you don't qualify to carry what you, you own, you can't really necessarily go buy something else, even if yeah, the metrics okay. are really good. You can on the commercial side, like you can with commercial financing, but it's not with residential. Gotcha. Okay, Jacob. So with that, I think that was a that was a lot of beautiful content there, like really valuable <laughs> content. So we're gonna move on to kind of our final three questions that we asked you, and I think you might have already answered this throughout the episode. But you know, where are we gonna be seeing you five years from now? Like, what's your goals, vision, all that kind of stuff? Florida. I think basically for me, like five, 10 years from now, like the most important thing for sure is like having a family. Like it will be ridiculous. It'll be a shame if I like at that point, I still don't have a family. Like I'm a single guy right now, you know, I'm 31. So it's getting to that age where I really need to like actually start like having a family and all that. So that's probably number one thing. Second thing is just coaching my team. Like for me, I'm most excited to what is going to be the growth of my team and five, what does my staff look like in five years plus, right? Because right now, you know, we have four full-time staff and they're all really committed and they all work really hard and they all like see a long-term with our organization, right? So it's up to us to, you know, build the organization that has a future for everybody within it, right? So I think, you know, within five years, hopefully you're seeing a lot more of my team versus me kind of thing. That would be the main thing. And I think hopefully in five years from now too, I'm not investing in real estate anymore. I think it's just private. It has to just be private lending at that point because there has to be a certain age where, you know, the growth focus, the hyper growth focus is not the goal, right? Because then if that's the case, it's like, am I just doing it? So I have bigger numbers. And when I appear on the podcast, so I have a hundred doors on the podcast and not 39, right? Like, so I, I got to have a bit of strategy there, but I think, you know, the, the mortgage business running on its own, a focus on private lending, and then, you know, looking forward to seeing what my team becomes in five years. Second question. If you won $10 million today, what would you do with it? And I'm adding this caveat. You cannot put it all in real estate or investing, <laughs> but some of it, sure. But you got to spend enough. Yeah. Well, I think, I think 10 million would be a good number. And, you know, obviously I would do, I would do the things like for my family and things like that, like everybody else would. Right. But the main thing for me, honestly, I've thought about winning millions, like a million times, just like everybody else. Right. So for me, hundred percent, I would go do stem cell. I would hire a personal trainer, nutritionist. And like, I would have one year that was just a hundred percent dedicated to my health because you have the money locked down. So why, what else matters at that point? So I think I would get, you know, the best physiotherapy in the world, the best stem cell treatment in the world, I would be like meditating all the time. So it would just be like all about my mental, physical, spiritual health. That would be like the first year of my life for sure. Damn. I feel like Jacob would just come out jacked after that break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you guys know Gucci Mane, you know how he went to prison, he was fat. And then he came out like with six pack abs, a chest, <laughs> like he was totally ripped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. I'd, and I'd have an aura around me because I'd be so zen after all my meditating. So. <laughs> exactly. All right, Jacob. If you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, like who would you choose and why? Going to be a controversial answer. Sorry about this. But no, it would have to be 100% has to be Donald Trump right now. Oh, like, I, just, I too, just, too, just too interesting, <laughs> honestly, because... You know, it's so funny because, you know, you see one person who's projected on the screen all the time, you know, about he's this bad guy or this and that. But 
or he's going to start a world war. We always hear that about Donald Trump, right? And then he goes to these places and he comes out with these amazing negotiated deals for the U.S., whether it's an improved trade deal, whether it's a peace deal in the Middle East, like all these different things are happening. So I just want to know what's going on behind the closed doors because you're seeing one personality online. You're seeing one personality in the media or at least like being projected, but then he seems to be bonding with all these world leaders too and seems to be getting the results, right? And negotiation is such a huge skill in real estate. So I think that would be the most interesting person to sit down with, you know, just hear the, the, his perspective. So obviously like anybody in any government is seeing a lot of things behind the scenes that we're not seeing, right? That we don't know what's going on. So 100%, that would be my answer right now. And, you know, who knows? Have you watched the Trump do- documentary on Netflix, Trump American Dream? I think I watched most of the episodes. I don't watch a ton of Netflix, to be honest. I'm not like a big net, but I did watch a bunch of them. I think it goes through like obviously like his casinos and a few different the business yeah, deals yeah. and things it's like that. Yeah. Fascinating story and how he's like going it. So I don't know. I just watched it recently. So I was like, holy shit, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jacob's going to make his own documentary after getting dinner with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> off of that. Just expose yeah. all of the secrets. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. Anyways, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. This was an awesome podcast episode. I know I definitely learned a lot as well, Mayu as well. Again, look, we need to do another episode later on because we didn't even get to dive down into the JVs or the mm-hmm. multifamily side of things, which we know is yeah. a super important part of your journey. Hoping you're open to that. But, anyways, Jacob, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? I think the best way to do so is definitely on my Instagram at Jacob Perez 10. There's also a button on my Instagram where you can book a call directly with me. So you'll see a lot of people will ask me questions in the DMs. You'll usually get a link to book a call back. That way, you know, I can actually give you the time you deserve and go through all those kind of details, but definitely follow me on Instagram. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you guys for tuning in. Once again, all of Jacob's contact information will be in the show notes. So feel free to reach out to him there. And until next time, guys, invest smarter and live better.